Maundy Thursday is an interesting tradition in that when you look it up, it's all over the place in terms of some of the traditions that are out there. Some tend to go, it's foot washing, and that's the command that was given there. Um, I, I tend to take a little bit wider view of that Thursday night. Obviously, it's focusing on that upper room where Jesus was spending that last night with his disciples, and uh, he was teaching them and training them and showing them what real servanthood was like. And, and I think even we'll get into it a little bit here later, just of, of a wider purpose as, as well. But I want to pray as we begin here uh, tonight. So, Father, as we dig into your word a bit, I would ask that you would call us back to remember that occasion of when your son was had come into this world and this last week of Easter season that reminds us of the great work that your son did and uh, went from a triumphal entry to a Thursday night where he was telling his disciples and preparing them for his death. And, and it's this week that we prepare as well and we, we wrestle with what you have done and, and uh, the gift of your son to die for our sins and Lord, in many ways, that was a dark night. We recognize that. But Lord, at the end of the, of the day, uh, on Sunday, um, in Easter, as we look forward to even Sunday, Lord, this is what you have done because of your love. And we just want to thank you for that. We thank you just for the history even that's recorded, uh, that's been written in your word for us, that teaches us, that uh, pulls us to worship you because of this week. So we would ask that our lives would be worthy and that we would worship you this week. Help give us your spirit within us just to have a week of just focusing, a few days of focusing on you and what you've done. So we, we give again these few minutes to you. These, these things we pray in your name. Amen. Last Sunday we looked back at the time where Jesus was going to the cross and it started last Sunday where Jesus was coming into the city and people were cheering him in hopes that he was going to be that Messiah that was going to free them from the hated Romans. But when one looks closely at that crowd, that was, and this is what we kind of went over last Sunday, that crowd four days later were basically walking away from Jesus. And they really weren't found anywhere. They didn't rise up. There was no voices that rose up when there was this tension of, should I release Barabbas or Jesus? You understand, that crowd disappeared and there was no voices that, that yelled and said, no, this is a good man. But this event teaches us something. And I think it also teaches us and needs to apply in 2015 as well. Now, just, just a quick reminder that Mark records many of the historical events between Jesus riding in the city and his crucifixion. Mark is one of those where it gives a lot of details in terms of that week in the city of Jerusalem. And it tells us that after he rode into Jerusalem, there were a number of confrontations that took place between those who hated him. They despised him, and we'll see that. And they were going after him. And Mark, if you got your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Mark here for tonight. But there's this place where they confront him, 
And they meet him in the temple. And the religious leaders go after him. And what their goal was, in the, in the passage that we're going to look tonight, they wanted to expose this Jesus as a fraud. And, and I think what this historical picture from Mark reveals to us is this. It gives the intense, intense hatred that they had for Jesus. As I was studying it this week, I just it was overcome sometimes just by going, these guys really, really hated him. And it was deep and it was burning within them. Now, the context of this, turn to chapter 11 here, but the context of this is he it has a confrontation in the temple is that the day before, this would have been on Tuesday, by the way, but on Monday, if you remember, he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple out. Remember that picture there of he goes in and he, he crashes over stuff and, and you understand that's kind of the context of where we're going to go to the starting point for tonight just looking at a, a couple of these historical events. And it's obvious that the leaders at that time knew what he had done. He had gone into the temple, cleansed it in one sense, and said, I'm going to make it a house of prayer. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage for the sake of time tonight, and but we want to dig into a few of the verses here. And so last week, again, on Sunday, I said they abandoned Jesus and the crowds walked away. But tonight, for tonight, there was a second crowd that existed that week. And that crowd, I titled it this way, is those that actively rejected Jesus. They were the rejectors of him. And there was a group of them, and I think you could label them a crowd, and this crowd was dominated by the Jewish leadership. And when you look at this, there was nothing, it was very blatant, and there was nothing passive about this crowd. Their goal was to destroy Jesus. So Mark records this collection of people that make up this crowd who had rejected him. And it reveals three sets of people that confront him. And before we get into the text, here's the groups. It was representatives from the Sanhedrin, and then there was the Pharisees, and then there was Herodians. If you don't know that term, I'll let you in on it a little bit later. But let me show you, and this is where we need to go tonight, how we need to apply this to our lives, because I think this is an application for 2015. And there's a statement I want to put on the screen that I think we're going to have to wrestle with even tonight. As followers of Christ, we will be offered the same path to become a target of the crowds who will reject Jesus, his word, and his disciples. Folks, that's 2015. We are going to be offered to walk a path, I believe in the next number of years, looking out over the next few years, and as you know, things are changing But that statement applies to the text even today. I think as we look ahead, one of the things that I'm convinced of is that we need to be preparing our lives, uh, preparing the church, preparing our children for the day that rejection is going to come, suffering is going to come. Why? Because we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. 
And I think it's so easy to live in a bubble and deny really what's happening in the world out there even today. The the movement of anti-Jesus and anti-Bible values have grown exponentially in the last few years. Now look at the text to begin with here tonight. Mark 11, 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now here's a group of religious leaders. They're representatives of the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin was a religious council that dealt with the issues that had nothing to do with Rome. It was kind of the religious leadership. But they come to Jesus, and this would have been Tuesday, intent on confronting him with two questions. And the first one is this. Jesus, what are your credentials? And who gave you the authority to do these things? Okay, why were they asking that? Because the day before, again, he had gone into the temple and he drove out the money changers and wanting to restore it to a house of prayer. So they're asking him, by what authority or what power did you act in the temple? Why? Why did they ask that? And it's this. Recognize Jesus had no official title. People called him teacher, but he wasn't technically a teacher in the religious sense. There was no political power that he had. He really shouldn't have been doing that in the eyes of the leaders there. You catch this confrontation that's going on. They're out to get get him. But they're asking... A question here, really, it reveals their hatred of this man. They hated him. And this was just one more nail in the coffin of driving the hatred even deeper that day. Remember, he was people were following around, listening to his teaching, he was doing his miracles, all of those things, they were it was bugging the these leaders. But their hatred was growing. And their goal in these questions really wasn't to ask him why. They were looking to discredit this man. And I want to jump to 2015 for a moment here. I want to apply this just for a minute here. Do we realize that there are people rising up faster than ever looking to discredit anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus now? I don't know if you're listening, if you guys listen to the news. I try to keep abreast of it a little bit. Just this last weekend, a man by the name of Tim Cook. Anybody know that name? Tim Cook is the CEO of Apple Corporation, largest company in the world. And the statement that he came out with here over the weekend, or I think it might have been Monday, He basically said this, that if you guarantee somebody the right to have a religious belief, it's dangerous. That was his statement. Because of, if you don't know, Indiana, the state got a little bit of trouble here this last week. 
And, and lots of people are tacking what they're trying to do there in terms of a religious law that would try to keep people having to be able to use their conscience in terms of what they do. But this fire in the media, it, it was they came down to punish the state of Indiana. And, and reading this last week, I don't know if you knew know this or heard this, but there was a call for people to move the NCAA tournament from Friday or from Saturday and Monday. People were calling them the NCAA to move it to another state because of that law. And you go, folks, this is what's happening right now. It, it, it's here, and and the challenge is, what do we do? You see, we have a rejecting crowd now, and Jesus had a rejecting crowd back then. And But this crowd back then, man, they were looking to trap him, to expose him as a false teacher, really in front of all of the people in the temple. And Jesus knew their heart. And, and so understand where he was going. And look at the response, Mark eleven twenty nine. Let me put that on the screen. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, Jesus responds to that question, by what authority do you do this? And he comes back with a question that actually humiliates this group of men. He asks the question, John's baptism, where did John get his authority? Was it heaven or was it from men? And their response really was prompted by fear of losing credibility with the people in that temple. Because here's one thing they did. They totally disregarded the evidence of who Jesus was. And what they functionally did here is they punted on the question. See, if they admitted that John was a prophet, as people had believed, then they knew that the conclusion was inevitable. Jesus was the Messiah. Why? John was bearing witness. He was, if he claimed to be who he was, then he was bearing witness to the, to the Messiah that was coming. But if they disowned John the Baptist, see, John the Baptist was loved, and if they disowned him, people would react against them, and so they were trapped in the middle. Really wouldn't want to debate Jesus, would you? <laughs> but, but here's these men, without any courage, Zero spiritual insight. And so they have to, in one sense, give in to the obvious. See, see they really refuse to acknowledge that what they knew is true. I don't know if you've ever thought about that group. I really think they knew that this was a man from God. I really believe that. But notice Jesus' reaction to we don't know. He doesn't say, neither do I. But he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, they weren't willing to tell Jesus 
what he had stumped them in. They, they couldn't spit it out of their mouths. And therefore, if they would have done it, they would have had to admit to the crowd that they actually were persecuting the Messiah. Now, I found one thing as I was digging a little bit this week. That word Messiah, I don't know if we realize it, but Jesus hardly ever used that term in reference to himself. And if you remember back in Mark 8, Peter confesses to him and he looks at Jesus and says, you're the Messiah. And remember what Jesus told them to do? Shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And why? Jesus knew he had to go to the cross. And if people would have believed that he was, if they would have rose up and said he's the Messiah, they were going to try to make him king. And he knew that he had a mission. And it was to go to the cross. But then Jesus continues the engagement. And and he gives some commentary in chapter 12. And he tells a parable there. I don't have it on the screen here, but it was really directed at these representatives of the Sanhedrin. And if you remember the parable, it goes like this, that a, that a, that a landowner had, had some land out there and he was, somebody was working the, the fields and, and then he sent his servants to do some stuff there and they killed the servants. And, and then he, well, he's not going to kill my son if I send my son. So he, he goes and sends his son in the parable. They also kill the son as well. You understand, he was pointing at that group that was confronting him at that point. And it was a, like a dagger going into them. They knew what, who he was after. See, the members of the Sanhedrin, they, they wanted to trap him. They hated him so much. But it wasn't only the Sanhedrin leadership that was trying to get at Jesus as well. See, there was really a couple other groups, and there was the Pharisees again, and the Sadducees were also after him looking to attack and to catch him in his words. Look at it, Mark 12, verse 13. They come to him again, and they sent him, they meaning the Sanhedrin, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Kind of buttering him up a bit. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Now, do you see the motive of the rejecting crowd of that crowd? They couldn't just let Jesus be. They couldn't just ignore him. So they were looking again. Another group of people looks for another excuse to discredit him. And why? They were, can I say this? They're kind of protecting their own butts here. Okay. But they were looking ultimately to kill him. And so if they could discredit him, they could take the next step of really going after him and killing him. Now, let me just stop and define some terms here, just so because it adds weight a little bit to the depth here and, and really to the hate. The Sadducees, if you don't know that, 
they were the group that were the aristocrats. They're the ones that had money, wealthy, uh, powerful positions. They held the chief priest and the high priest office. That was the Sadducees. And, and they actually held the majority of seats in the religious council, the Sanhedrin. Okay, That was the Sadducees. But the Pharisees... They were really in contrast, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you know, understand, were fighting against each other often. But the Pharisees were mostly middle-class businessmen. And they dealt more often with the common man of that day. See, the Pharisees actually were held in higher esteem by the public than the Sadducees. Why? Because they interacted with them in their businesses from day to day. But they actually were the minority in the Sanhedrin. And even though, although even though they had a minority, people seemed to listen to them and people followed them more. Okay, so they had kind of the support of, of the people of that day. But let me introduce then Herodians, Herodians. This was the group of Jews that had political power. And most scholars would believe that this is a, almost a Jewish party political party that supported King Herod Antipas, if you know that name. He was the Roman emperor from um, 4 BC to 39 AD, but the Herodians favored submitting to the the Herods and ultimately then to Rome. And it was kind of for political expediency. That, That was the Herodians there. But in the minds of the Pharisees, understand, supporting Herod was your traitor. Okay, so you got three groups of people: Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians. All of them hating each other. You, you catch that? They didn't like each other, and all three groups who hated each other came together and said, we're going to get this guy. We're going to destroy Jesus. So the text says that they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch Jesus. So they they joined together in kind of arm in arm, even though they hated each other. And and so it's a Sanhedrin probably asked these guys, hey, you go and try to trick him. And when you stop and think about it, okay, do you understand the, the breadth of the conspiracy here? going after Jesus. This wasn't one or two guys. A political party, a group of Pharisees and a group of Sadducees all going arm in arm, whispering behind everybody's back and saying, we're going to get this guy. We're going to trap him. And so what they do, they try to trap him by asking a question of paying taxes. And let me put that on the screen for you. So they, they say, you know what, do you have to pay taxes to Rome? And, but here's the response of Jesus. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Now, why did they ask that question? See, if Jesus would have said, yeah, we need to pay taxes, the people there, the crowd that was there watching, you're a traitor. You're giving your life over to Rome. 
But if he refused to pay taxes, the Herodians could come to him and go, you're starting a riot. You're, you're starting to cause people to turn on Rome. And then they could arrest him for that. Do you see what they were after here? The intensity of it. Uh, Jesus was not caught off guard, even for a moment. And he immediately calls out their hypocrisy. And he looks at this coin, and he, I wish I had a coin here. He looks at a coin, and Jesus said, whose inscription is on here? And they reply, Caesar's. And then, okay, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's. Do what God, the things of God. You know, and he made this point, and I think what happened is the leaders at that point were trying to trick him. They had to look at each other and kind of go, wow, now what do we do? Can you just picture it back then? See, here the leaders came to trap him again, and, and it says that they were left amazed at his teaching. So there's some degree of, I don't know if it was respect, it really doesn't imply what it really was, but they're just kind of shaking their head, their heads, and I think what they did is they put their tail between their legs and they walked away from this guy. Let me jump to some application, though. Why does Mark record it this way? Why does he record this, these confrontations between Jesus and the crowd that was rejecting him. And ask the question, how does it apply to us in 2015? Now, in digging and trying to go, okay, what's the application here? I think here's a couple of pieces to it. Understand that the book of Mark is written for the Gentile world. And the reason they would believe that is because throughout the book of Mark, it explains a lot of Jewish tradition. So they're assuming that it's not written to the Jews. Okay, So they believe, though, that, that this book of Mark was probably written, it's an educated guess, to the Christians in Rome. And what was going on in Rome? There was deep struggles and persecution as a result of standing up for Jesus. See, the historical portrait of conflict would actually have encouraged the people in Rome who were, being, who were suffering for taking a stand for Christ. And this history actually pushes us to continue to testify to the truth and not to buckle under the pressure of the opinion of others. See, even when we look to the tradition of Maundy Thursday, that tradition, I think we get, we look at it at micro and we get, it's about serving and washing feet. But I think that night was more about this. It was preparing his disciples to go into the world to make disciples and to potentially suffer. To suffer. This Mark text, it's why I think it's so relevant for us today. 15, 20 years ago, we were at a different spot. 
See, like never before, I think we have to prepare for the suffering that's coming, especially our young people and the few generations that are coming after them. I don't know if you heard in the news this afternoon, but a college in Kenya, there was a shooting there. Anybody hear that? A number of you did. And the, the, I don't remember who was coming in. They came into the, and they grabbed students and said, Muslim or Christian? You know what they did? They, sh- they said, if, you're a Christ- if they were a Christian, they were shot. It's like 16 people were, I think, killed at that school, at college. Folks, the challenge of what is taking place is that we must prepare for suffering. Now, maybe not in Grand Rapids so much, but I think in terms of some of the bigger cities, and you're seeing it all out there, Minneapolis, San Francisco, some of those places where the demographic is very different. So I wonder, and I was thinking out loud this afternoon, I go, I wonder if people, businesses are going to want to actually put the fish on their door. You ever thought of that in some cities right now? Well, we're, if you've got a fish on your door, we're going to target you. I think that's coming. It maybe has already happened in Indianapolis. I don't know. See, what do we do, though? I, I think that's the challenge for us. What do we do? But I think the question, the better question is, what does Jesus want? What does he want with a changing world? See, I think the temptation is to do this. Let's just build fortresses, gather together, never deal with the world out there, only do business with Christians, circle the wagons. When they throw the bricks over the wall at us, let's just throw the brick back over the wall. And I go, I'm not sure that's what Jesus wants. Let me just list a couple things that I think needs to happen. I don't have these on the screen or anything. We need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. We have to be able to do that. We need to be able to give an answer to our families, the people that we work with, those that we bump into. See, I believe that we haven't really needed to learn to do that If you go back 20, 30 years, it was much more Christian than it was today. We got soft. I really think we did. We got a bit soft. But we have to figure out how to dialogue with people, give the gospel with grace. That's what we got to do. But here's a second one. We must stop playing the victim role. I really believe that. And when we're confronted with difficult people, we need to be actually rejoiced that our Savior has gone through the very same thing. And that's not being a victim. And do we have to always demand to be heard? No, but we need to be actually request people. Can I, can I, we need to stand up and be counted and ask for an audience at times. And we need to be ready to articulate those things. And if they don't listen, we recognize that God still loves them profoundly. 
And if they are willing to listen, then we need the wisdom to present the gospel in a timely and compassionate way with the fruit of the Spirit. And the third one, I think this is the hardest. It's easy, at least for me, to get frustrated by the path this world is headed. But here's what I think Jesus would want us to do. He wants us to leave judging these people into the hands of his Father. And I understand in the Christian world, again, there's some disagreement as to who wrote the book of Mark. I don't know if you know that. Most people right now would say that Mark didn't write it. Okay, and, and one of the latest theories on this is that actually it was Peter who wrote it and dictated it to somebody else, maybe Mark. Okay, just to the style and some of the things there. And if that's true, it actually makes quite a lot of sense. Okay, because I want to put a verse on the screen from 1 Peter chapter 2. And folks, this applies to today profoundly. Look at 1 Peter 2, 20, verse B. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before the God. To this you are called. What's that? Suffering. Suffering. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. What did he do? He, remember when he hangs on the cro- hung on the cross that day, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That was his attitude. But he did one other thing here, and it's that last phrase. He made threats instead. Look at what Jesus said he'd do. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What did Jesus do? He said, I am not going to be the judge of these people that are persecuting me. And he goes, I leave it in the hands of my Father. And he actually had to draw on the power of God, his father, not to hurl the insults and the retaliate against his people. He drew on the strength of his father. Father, I need your power. And it was the spirit was actually in Christ. And Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But he said, I will leave the judgment of those people that are crucifying me to you. And that's what we are called to do. So when we look at a lost world, it is so easy to become hateful. But folks, this is a world that desperately needs Jesus. And I recognize that they don't believe in him because they cannot believe. See, the love of God is so evident in this world even Romans 1, just creation, everything, they know that there's a God. He, he's out there for them to see. But we, we recognize that they choose not to believe because they don't want to believe. And that's hard. But actually, that's the same thing at the time of Jesus as well. See, deep down, I think these guys knew he was the Messiah or at least was a man of God. 
Maybe to put it that way. They knew it, and they just chose not to believe it. So this supper on Thursday night, do you understand Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He knows that people are going to be spitting at him. He knows he's going to get whipped. He's going to beat. And what Jesus, I believe, in the bigger picture of that night is he was preparing them to go make disciples, but ultimately as well, he knew that they were going to suffer just like him.